You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. pastor has asked me uh, to preach a sermon of reflection for the new year, and uh, this was the best text that I could think of. And so uh, this morning we'll be looking at uh, Luke chapter 12. Jesus is teaching the crowds, and as he's doing so, a guy sticks up his hand and says, hey, Jesus... Would you please make my brother split the inheritance with me? He's trying to settle a family financial dispute. And Jesus refuses to do this. But Jesus turns to the crowd and he tells them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so the question is, what does one's life consist of? And hence this text at a new year. Because this text, as we go through it, will address both our hopes and our fears. So Jesus tells a story to the crowd about a rich landowner whose land produced very well, and he gets a windfall crop. And so as this uh, landowner becomes more wealthy, what he... What does he do with all of his wealth? Well, the only thing he can think of to do is to pile it up and seeing that his future is secure. uh, For him, life consisted of kicking back, eating good food, and being happy. And what could be wrong with that, right? We're all good Americans. He had a dream, and finally he had the means to carry it out. The problem was that he immediately dies, and he has to face God. And so when God speaks... He calls this man a fool because the man spent his life accumulating something that didn't last and the man was completely empty-handed in relation to God and what God cared about. And so Jesus says, this is how it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. To be rich toward God is to invest your life in doing things that God cares about. And so for some of us, it might be that our goals for the year 2024, are basically about ourselves and we want to get money so that we can get things or do things that we want. And so maybe our goals are just blatantly selfish. But what if your goal for 2024 is, well, look, I'm just trying to survive. Or you don't know what I've got coming this year. Or I see lots of doctor appointments in my future year. Or maybe, uh, Ben, I live on a fixed income And piling up wealth is no longer part of, it's not even in the picture. What what do we do then? What if we're concerned about what the future year may hold? Um, It's probably maybe more likely that we are going to struggle with anxiety and worry about the coming year than we are to struggle with uh, dreams of grandeur and greed. And so Jesus is actually going to pivot from talking about covetousness to talking about anxiety as if there's a connection between the two, and maybe that surprises us. But the underlying question in both sections is the same. What is your life about? So let's read Luke 12, 
We'll begin in verse 22, and we'll read to verse 34, and then we'll come back and kind of walk through the text and um, try to make some specific applications at the end that will pertain to us standing on the edge of a new year. So let's begin reading Luke chapter 12, verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They, they don't spin yarn for fabric. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass like this, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who sees our hearts. You made us and even in our fallenness and wickedness and darkness. Lord, you see who we are, and you love us by grace. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would hear the words of Christ, that we would take time to let them settle into our hearts, that we would respond with humility and with faith. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted in our hearts today, that we would all leave knowing that you are good. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Jesus begins by telling them, remember, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And then he says to your disciples, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat or what you will put on. So the fact that Jesus begins with the word, therefore, should be a little flag to us that these sections are connected. In other words, if life is not about the things you own, then neither should you hoard stuff, nor should you worry. Now you consider um, these disciples, they were men with wives and families who having left their jobs to learn from a rabbi, probably did not feel in any danger of suddenly getting rich. They probably did wonder, however, if they could make it and keep following Jesus. And so Jesus says, do not be anxious about food and clothing. Now, this might be a little jarring to us because you think of all the things that you could justify worrying about, you could go down to the very bottom of bare necessities. Well, you need food and clothing to live, so I can worry about those things, right? But Jesus says, don't. So what's wrong with that? 
Well, God did not make humans and deposit them on earth just to eke it out on our own, doing our own thing. It's not as if God made us merely to exist. God created us to glorify him by relating to him and knowing him and reflecting his own wise rulership of all things on this little earth. Food and clothing are a means to that end. Food and clothing are not a means in themselves. In other words, my existence is not just about me. God gave us a purpose. And so Jesus knows that we need food and clothing, right? He says, your father knows that you need these things. And actually, earlier in Luke, Jesus had already taught his disciples, when you pray, you ought to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But you think of our Western society. We have tons of daily bread. Our basic needs seem almost assured. And yet, has that uh, resulted in uh, satisfaction and freedom from anxiety? No. You say our, our society is at crisis levels of anxiety and crisis levels of dissatisfaction and despair. So life certainly must be about something more than those things. And so uh, Jesus is going to start working through some reasons why we should not be anxious. Oh, I'm hitting the wrong. There we go. Okay. Um, and so the, the first reason that we just hit is that we should not be anxious because even, uh, we, sorry, we should not be anxious even about our most basic needs because life is more about, life is about more than mere survival. And Jesus will continue. In verse 24, he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. So reason two, you should not worry because God values you. Jesus says, of how much more value are you than birds? Okay, well, there we go. All right, I'm getting to know the clicker. I don't usually use the clicker, so. Um, so we've all seen ravens or, or crows. Uh, they're these big, oily blackbirds. They're scavengers. They eat whatever is lying around on the ground. Um, they're like dead animals, trash. For the mo the, under, the, under the Mosaic law, for the Israelites, uh, the ravens were unclean birds, and you can imagine why. Um, nobody in the ancient world particularly valued ravens um, any more than we do. Uh, can you imagine going to the grocery store parking lot and seeing a group of picketers? Save the crows. You know, and they're the... They're the crows in the parking lot picking up French fries and um, smashed paper cups. Um, who loves crows? God does. God loves the crows. He provides them food. They have no financial buffer. They have no emergency fund. They live hand to mouth or claw to beak, if you will. But God feeds them. And you say, well, yeah, but that doesn't count because they're like picking stuff off the ground. But that's the whole point. God made a world in which the natural rhythms of creation support the lives of things like crows. Even, uh, even the parts of creation that we don't pay any attention to, God does. Creation works as a whole because God sustains it. And if God loves scavenging birds, Jesus asks, what do you think God thinks about you? And that's an important question. If you were to believe 
in a naturalistic worldview, to believe in evolution, you would have to say that you're an animal in a blind verse, blind universe, and that nobody and nothing cares for you. But Genesis 1 and 2 make very clear that as a human, you are unique in creation because God made you in his image. You, you are his image bearer, and you are precious to God. And this is Jesus' point. A God who sustains his creation could never neglect his most precious creation. Do not be anxious about your future because God already cares about it. But he continues on. Verse 25. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So, reason number three, why you should not worry. There we go. I don't know why he's doing that. Um, Jesus asks, can you lengthen your life even a little bit by worrying about it? No. Now, you might say, are there not things that you can do to shorten or lengthen your life? Well, yes, there are. This is statistically true in God's world. And God says so in the book of Proverbs. Those who live wisely often enjoy the benefit of a longer life. You could, for instance, quit smoking. You could avoid crime. You could kick your daily hot dog habit. Um, and you probably will live longer, statistically. But even for the most careful person, the person who juices kale for breakfast. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad idea. Um, the minute of, of your death could come at any time, and when it does, it will come because of God's sovereign decree. You cannot negotiate the moment of your death, not even a moment. You can't delay it for 15 minutes. And Jesus says, this is a small thing, and you can't even do that. So you can't do the rest either. You can't control the monumental task of supplying your own food and clothing. You think of, of how many supply chains, farmers, soil conditions, weather, the health of the bee population and pollinators, how many things go into providing you food and clothing? The whole world. And you are not sovereign over those things. You cannot worry them into submission. Only God is sovereign. And Jesus says, this is all simply too much for you to worry about your food and clothing. The circumstances of your life are not in your hands, they are in God's hands. And so how does Jesus expect us to respond to this? If God is sovereign over every area of my life, well, for the rich man in Jesus' parable earlier, God's sovereignty intruded into his plans when the man died. God's sovereignty was jarring and unwelcome, but for those who God, call God Father, God's sovereignty is a precious and comforting truth because God can be trusted. So Jesus continues on. Verse 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin yarn to make fabric, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So reason four, not to worry. God cares for the beauty of his creation. Jesus points his disciples' attention to the wildflowers and to grasses. Um, if you just slow down and actually look at wildflowers, they really are beautiful. The problem is that usually we just walk by them, we step on them, and we don't really pay them much attention. 
uh, because we have shops called florists who have these huge flowers in abundance, and we just kind of ignore all the other stuff that's naturally around. But there's a reason why every culture in the world, including Solomon's, has embroidered floral and plant designs on their fabrics and on their clothes because we, we, we know that they're beautiful and we just want to get in on their beauty. We, we, we want to have some fraction of plant beauty on us. In ancient Palestine, various wild grasses, when they were dried, were really handy kindling for bread ovens. And uh, probably largely the grass was ignored until you needed to burn something and then you just go grab some grass. And Jesus says, look at these plants that you view them merely for their utility. But have you thought about how beautifully and how lavishly God adorns them? Have you stopped to stoop down and look at the tiny flowers, the delicateness, the, the purity of the color in these? You, th you see how, how God lavishes this expense on these little plants that you really don't care about. Do you not think that he would do the same for you? Well, apparently, some of them didn't think God would do that for them. And so Jesus calls them people of little faith. Jesus implies that our anxieties about the circumstances of our lives are at root a failure in how we think about God. And this is an important truth of Christian discipleship. Um, there's a, a book, perhaps you've read it, by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, he starts out by saying, the most important thing about a person is what deep in your heart you think about God and who you think he is. It colors every part of your life. Um, I just want to say a couple things about uh, two possible objections about the bird and the flower um, examples that Jesus uses. Um, the first one is um, this. Does Jesus intend for us to emulate birds and flowers by not working? Um, the answer is no. Paul says to the church in uh, Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says this, We urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Jesus is not saying that we should be passive. In fact, one of the ways that God blessed Adam and Eve in the garden is by giving them meaningful work to do. And he blesses us by doing the same. The point is that we see that our efforts, our work in 2024, and 2024 will be filled with work for all of us of one sort or another, but that we see our work overshadowed by God's sovereign goodness, that we go about our work not in anxiety, and desperation, but that we go about it with faith, that God will use our efforts as the ordinary means by which he provides for our families and for others. Um, there's a second objection, though, that um, you may have never thought of when you looked at this passage, but maybe perhaps some of you have, and so um, I, I'll mention it here. Perhaps because it was an objection that I had when I was growing up for years. And it's this. Is all of this too simplistic? I mean, if, if you think about it, the birds do die. They get hit by like windmill arms. And, um, sorry. The grass does actually wither and get thrown in the oven. And don't Christians suffer? Don't Christians sometimes lack what they need? 
Don't, do, do no Christians ever starve? Well, we know that sometimes they do. So how can this passage be true? If, God, if Jesus says that God will care for your needs. Well, I just want to make a couple observations. First, we do live in a world that is cursed by God because of our sin. And suffering and pain are part of that curse. God allows bad things to happen. You ask a person on the street, what does God owe you? They're likely to start like quoting the U.S. Constitution. Um, God owes me life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Maybe they'll quote a Disney movie. Um, but the truth is that because of our sin, what does God owe me? God owes me judgment, eternal judgment in hell. And that for us is like cold water in our faces. It is an affront to our sensibilities. And yet this is biblical truth. God owes me nothing good. But we need to also acknowledge that our world is beautiful and filled with God's good gifts. And as we recognize those gifts, we are not uh, allowed to dismiss all of them and say, well, my life is hard, so therefore I refuse to acknowledge all of God's kindness to me or all the ways in which he has provided for me. Um, Jesus points out the birds and flowers precisely because they are evidence of, evidences of God's care that we ignore. So Jesus is pushing us to notice, to look and see how many ways God cares for his creation and cares for us. Uh, third, just as life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, so life also does not consist in the total avoidance of suffering and pain. In fact, Jesus tells us to expect both. Avoiding pain might be our purpose for life, but it is not God's purpose for our life. Um, we've been going through Romans, and in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, we as believers, we even rejoice in our sufferings because we know that God is working endurance in us and that ultimately God is conforming us to the image of his son. And that is God's grace to us, no matter what means he has to use to do that. And um, last, um, if our purpose for existing is to know and glorify God, um, then we can glorify God even when the food runs low and the clothing is old. Jesus says in Luke 21 to his disciples, he says, saying what is going to happen after he returns to heaven. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. So how can Jesus say that? Look, look at Jesus' math. He says, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. So how does that work? Well, obviously, God's protection of us does not preclude suffering. But when all is said and done, it will be seen to be true that God did care for us. I just want, you can kind of do a mental thought experiment here. Um, if you would think of the martyrs in heaven in the book of Revelation, you could go up to them in the new heaven and new earth and say, you who were killed cruelly for your testimony of Christ, did God care for you? What do you think they would say? Okay. But Jesus has one more reason why we should not be anxious. And it's this. Because if you know the true God, you can 
trust him. Uh, verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. So Jesus talks again about food and drink. And I think his point here is that the pagans are content to consume their lives basically with living as long as possible and doing so in the most comfortable way possible. It's just, I just want to live more years and I want it to be as fun as possible. And that's what life consists of for them. If you take away knowing and loving God, that's all you are left with. They're consumed with food and drink and they are anxious. And Jesus says, this is how the pagans who don't know God act. This is too petty. It's too low a goal. It's too miserable in existence. You know better. So when you worry, you're living your life by the same motives as godless people do, and something's wrong. And second, he says, your father has already thought about your needs long before you have. And so those who know God as father ought to seek something more than that. But what? Verse 31, he says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Remember, Jesus said that the, the pagans seek after food and drink. They are, again, like good Americans, seeing themselves as fundamentally consumers. But Jesus says, you are to seek God's kingdom. So what does it mean to seek God's kingdom? This is this was difficult, but here's, here's my stab at it. To seek God's kingdom means that, first, I am a willing subject of the king. And I am in the process of aligning my life with the king's agenda. So it has to do with my relationship to the king, and it has to do with what I live for. Do I have my own agenda that's driving what I do, or is my life about God's agenda? When humans seek our own kingdoms and our own glory, the result is always hollowness and emptiness and ugliness. But God made us for more, to live under his kind rule and pursue his purposes and trust his promises. God's agenda is always better than ours. So Jesus says, life is not about the abundance of your possessions, and it isn't even about you at all. Life is about God. You do what God wants, and God will care, take care of you. And then he says this in verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And it's like this culminating sweep. He says, it is your father's delight to give you his coming kingdom. He made you his, and he wants to keep you with him in his presence forever, where he will be your God and you will be his people. What lavish grace. So in, the, in this passage, Jesus has moved from look at your present See a good and sovereign God overshadowing all of your days right now. And then I want you to look into your future. And I want you to see the kingdom. There is no part of your present or your future of 2024 or beyond that is not secure. No part that gives you an excuse for anxiety. No solid part that you are at threat of losing. No part from which God will be absent. Okay, so now what? Sell your stuff. Sell your stuff. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Jesus says, sell your stuff. 
Life is not about possessions, whether you're uh, rich or whether you're just, by, just getting by. Life is about God. And if your present is secure and your future is secure, then you have nothing to lose. You are free. You are freed from the tyranny of self-preservation. You no longer have to grasp onto your stuff, build your own kingdom, be crippled by anxiety that you will lose everything. Rather, entrusting your life to God's care, you can seek his kingdom undistracted without fear. You can obey Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you. You can sacrifice and not be afraid that the math will come back and bite you. You won't have lost anything. Your life actually, at the end of your life, will have accumulated acts of faith and love that God values and that will last for eternity. Of course, these good works do not earn you entrance into the kingdom, but they are the evidence that you are one of the king's subjects. Someday they will serve as a beautiful adornment for God's people. We read again in the book of Revelation, it says that the, the saints are wearing white robes, and it says these pure white robes are the righteous deeds of the saints. That God's people, as they respond in acts of faith and obedience, it is a beautiful thing that someday will adorn God's people. It is a testament that God is good and that his kingdom is marked by love. If you want to see an example of what this looks like, we read in the early chapters of Acts how the early church put this, uh, like put feet on this in chapters 2 and 4 about how they, they shared with each other. They gave up things that they had to provide for those who needed. God's people don't live every man for himself any more than Jesus lived for himself. We are free to use our resources, whatever those may be, to care for each other. And so Jesus gives one more reason here why you should set your sights on generosity for God's glory. Because all of this is about your heart. This whole passage has been not just about money or possessions or even anxiety, but at root about the objects of your heart's affection, about what you love. Where your treasure is, that indicates where your heart has been the whole time. Whatever you treasure, whatever you prioritize, to use a word from earlier in the passage, whatever you seek, whatever, whatever you're after, that is what you love. And so here's the main point. I think of this passage, sorry. Because God will care for our needs this coming year, we must invest ourselves into each other for the good of others. And so uh, there are lots of applications that we could make from this text, but um, I want to just highlight a few that I think um, do pertain to the new year. Again, we can make lots of applications about worry and anxiety and things like that. We don't have time to get into that, but I do want to bring up um, a couple thoughts here. First, spend time reflecting on the many, many evidence of evidences of God's care in your life. This passage calls us to assess our view of God. Do we think that he is generous? That he is stingy? Can he be trusted or can he not? Is he miserly with his gifts? Is he negligent in his rule? What is God like? The first facet of this, um, I think, would be your Bible intake. Maybe starting a Bible reading plan is a good idea at the start of a new year, even if last year you fell off the train in February, okay? 
But think about, what is your plan for some sort of Bible intake, constant Bible intake this year? So that you get fresh reminders of all that Christ has done for you, of what Christ gave for you, of the grace that is yours because of the cross of Christ. Um, Second, spend time honestly recounting God's goodness to you. Remember the song, count your blessings, name them one by one? It's great advice. These blessings have come to you by ordinary means, right? They come from farmers. Maybe it comes in the Amazon truck. But all of them are ultimately evidences of God's care and generosity to you. I would even encourage you, consider praying before your meals to thank God for what he's given you. Maybe infuse that with fresh purpose if you've been doing it your whole life. Find a way to spend time observing God's care of all creation. Um, I, I think in our world of screens, where everything is digital, it's a good idea, honestly, to get outside, um, to go on a hike, to take your kids around your backyard, um, and, and read those little signs that talk about how the oysters filter the marsh water, you know, and uh, how they, they actually clean out the bay. You're like, who knew that oysters did that? But you read the sign and you get an appreciation for what is going on below the water, how God is caring for the Chesapeake Bay by way of the oysters. Uh, Maybe even uh, you could read books this year by people who live elsewhere in the world or people from other times of Christian history and get a feel for what life was like for them and what it meant for them to be grateful, to better calibrate our expectations and our sense for what we should be grateful for. So spend time reflecting on evidences of God's care to you in Christ, to you in creation, to you in the lives of other Christians. Um, Second, um, spend time looking into the future and remember where your home is. Remember this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Read Revelation chapters 20 and 21. If you believe in Jesus, your home is in the kingdom, in the new heaven and the new earth. We need to read these passages and and let them settle into our souls, not just have kind of a, a glib idea of like, oh yeah, there's heaven in the future somewhere, but actually spend time with it and let that settle into our hearts. We need to look into the future and be okay with waiting. Remember, we've come through the season of Advent which reminds us that all of God's people have always been waiting for God's promises to come true, right? We we wait with a different set of promises. Jesus has already come, but we're waiting for his second coming. And so we need to get used to waiting. And we need to do the math. Uh, There's a a missionary to Cambodia, some of you probably would know, who preached a, a message once, and he said, do the math. So when we look at our lives and we make our plans, if we look at our coming year, we need to do the math with the end of the equation in view, with the kingdom, with eternity on the other side of that equal sign. Without that in the equation, our math on this side of eternity will be all wrong. Why would you give that up? Why would you move to the other side of the world and spend Christmas away from your family? Why would you do any any number of things that Christians do in the name of Christ. Why would you spend your one life doing that? Because on the other side of the equation, there's this. 
It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your stuff. Okay. Luke 18, 28 through 30. Peter said to Jesus, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So the third thing you need to do, kind of simple, give shrewdly, self-sacrificially, and without fear from whatever God has given you. That could be money, but it might not be money. For you, it might actually be time. It might be your experience, your maturity. It might be your youthful energy. It could be your singleness. It could be your marriage or some other skill. Invest whatever you have in discipleship, in mission, in the relief of suffering, and knowing that the math will not come back to bite you. We look out um, into a, a new year. 2024 is a big unknown. There are lots of things that we don't know what's coming. It will involve suffering. It will involve death in families. But don't be afraid, because God cares for you. And therefore, we, by God's grace, are free to make God's agenda our agenda and know that we will never regret it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us um, to grasp your plans for us, that we would take time to let your word settle into our hearts, and that we would reorient our dreams and our expectations and our fears in light of your goodness and your promises. Lord, we need your spirit to do this because we're naturally stubborn. We're naturally going to just move on and, and forget. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, work in our hearts and help us to remember. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.